The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our now weekly webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the markets with my colleague, Ben Levison, and a conversation with Jonathan Boyer of the Boyer Value Group. Every December, John and his team create a list of the forgotten 40, 40 stocks with promising prospects that the market has ignored. We'll take a closer look today at some of these stocks, let's call them the forgotten five, and a whole lot more. Welcome, John and Ben, and thank you for joining me on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank, thanks for having me. A pleasure. So since this is my first Barron's Live call of the new year, I thought I'd start with an elementary question. What the heck is ailing this market? Stocks are not exactly off to the races this year after a fantastic 2023. John, I'd like to get your opinion, and then we'll hear from Ben. Well, I mean, it is only January 16th, so I, 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 wouldn't, read, <laughs> I wouldn't read too much into it, but you know, it is a bad sign historically when stocks don't perform well over, I guess, the first five days of the year. I would say, however, a lot of the returns may have been pushed forward. That's one thing. But I would also remember, in case people haven't noticed, uh, 2024 is a presidential election year. Um, you, oh, you we've might... noticed. <laughs> and uh, if you go by the Stock Traders Almanac, I, I believe it is the second best performing year uh, for, for the stock market. So, yeah, you do have some some tailwinds. But... It, there could also be a, a change in leadership coming, or it just might be, uh, you know, a, a, li- a little bit of a slowdown after a very strong November and December. Ben, what's your take on things? Yeah, I don't think anything's wrong with the stock market. We had a, a fantastic end to the year. Um, the year as a whole was better than anyone could have hoped for. Um, to think that uh, we were just going to keep that going, I think, would be uh, would have been irresponsible. Um, and so this market needs some time to uh, to figure things out. I don't think you can uh, make any, you know, as John was saying, I don't think you can make any judgments just yet uh, based on things. There's just a lot of portfolio management going on, people shifting in and out of things, trying to figure out what's going on. And so we're taking a break for a little while, and I think that's okay. All right, markets do that, as we know. So let's look at the composition of the market. Big cap tech stocks, the Magnificent Seven in particular, led the market last year. Meantime, small caps have lagged for several years, although they did perk up late last year. There has been a lot of talk about a coming small cap rally, but so far it has proved elusive. John, you've done a lot of work looking at small caps, and I wonder what you see as the case for small caps at this point and whether you think 2024 will be a breakout year. Yes, uh, I, I think small caps are, in our opinion, are the most attractive place to invest going forward. If you look at the Magnificent Seven or just large cap growth in general, they're selling about 40% above their historical you know, 20-year average. Small cap, small cap value 
is selling below its its 20 year average. If you look at the Russell 2000 uh, over the past three years cumulative, it's it's actually lost money. Uh, the S&P 500 is up 31% cumulatively. And since 2015 or 2016, um, on an annualized basis, the Russell has underperformed by about 6% or 7% a year compared to the S&P 500, which is extraordinarily rare. As if you look back since, let's say, 2000, the two are basically dead even. And if you go back even further, the Russell 2000 or small cap stocks have have actually outperformed. So we could be in for a prolonged period of catch up. Do you think the growth of the ETF world has had something to do with small caps underperformance? I think there's probably a lot of reasons for the underperformance. One, you know, last year, I think you could chalk that up to, to interest rates. Uh, flows and uh, momentum certainly are, are a big part of it, as well as the fact, and I, they uh, noted it in, in this year's Barron's Roundtable, which I enjoyed reading this year, um, uh, John Rogers noted that small cap stock research is terrible, or for the most part, I hope we're, we're an exception. And um, when you don't have coverage on a lot of these names, the stocks tend to, to lack. Right, right. That was a good point that he made for sure. So let's talk about the Forgotten 40, some of which don't suffer from or do suffer from lack of coverage, but many don't. They've just been neglected stocks as the market has taken off in the tech direction. Tell me when you started creating this annual list and tell us what your track record has been. Yeah, it's been um, it's been interesting. My father's actually my father started the company and started the Forgotten 40 sometime in the early 90s. And um, we're, it's kind of an anomaly for us. We're very long term patient investors. We take a three to five year time horizon for everything that we do, but we realize that some of our subscribers are not nearly as patient as we are. So we decided as our Christmas gift or holiday gift or whatever <laughs> the correct term is to our subscribers around Christmas each year is to send them the Forgotten 40, which is one page snapshots of our 40 best ideas that we think will outperform in the year ahead because there's some sort of catalyst, some sort of reason that we believe the stock market will recognize value, whether will they initiate a special dividend? Will they buy back a lot of stock? Could they be acquired? There's lots of different catalysts. Uh, and it's it's been very popular with our subscriber base. And it's something we enjoy doing because when you put pen to paper uh, or finger to keyboard, it, it's, it's, it's very helpful in the investment process. So, is this actually a gift to people or has it been coal in the stocking? In other words, how has the track record been? For the it's, it, it's, been a, it's been a mixed bag. I mean, over the last, let's say last year's list actually did quite well um, compared to va um, other value stocks or value managers. We were up uh, and we don't do a December 31st because I can't get my analysts to, to work on, on New Year's Eve. Uh, I've been trying. It, it, it hasn't it, it hasn't caught on well. But last year was up about 15 percent, um, which compared to the S&P 500 equal weight, which was up about 8 uh, percent and the Russell 2000 value, which was up similarly. Uh, it did well. But compared to the S&P 500, which is composed 
of you know big cap tech, which is something we we avoid. It hasn't done well, um, but over the past fifteen years, it's, it's it has a pretty good track record, as as Nick noted in his um, his piece that he did on it recently. So it's but it's one of those things whether the track record is good uh, or, or not overall. We look at these as giving people ideas. No one buys this in an equal weighted fashion each year. And if we can give our subscribers three or four good ideas that they're not thinking of to start off the year with, we've done our job. So speaking of those ideas, let's begin with one of them. That would be IAC, the Barry Diller founded company. It's on this year's list or last year's list. Um, it's a holding company that has spun off a lot of successful enterprises over the years, and it still owns quite a few. Why is IAC on the latest Forgotten 40, and what do you see as the investment case now? Sure. Uh, IAC is an extremely interesting company. And talk about performers. They, they've really delivered for, for investors. Uh, it's up 14x since 2008, uh, but it's 70% down from its 2021 highs. It's controlled by Barry Diller, who does not get enough credit for how good of a capital allocator he is, and is controlled by and is led by Joey Levin. And what is IAC? It owns Angie, or 86% of it. It owns 18% of MGM, the gaming company. It owns Dot Dash Meredith, which is the largest uh, digital publisher in America, reaching 95% of, uh, of women. And utilizing conservative assumptions, it's about a $50 stock. We get to around $70. Um, and we think uh, investors at current levels are getting Dot Dash Meredith, Care.com, a company called Toro, which they own 30% of, which is basically the Airbnb for, for, for cars that um, had about $747 million in revenue last year and is on their books for $300 million for free. So it's, it is a, it's a sum of the parts story, which are dangerous, which I, 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 you can get, you can give a lot of pushback on, but Barry Diller and company has a history of spinning these things out of creating value and the best time to buy these stocks are generally when no one wants to own them. He spun out Expedia. What were some of the other spin outs? match Ticketmaster. his thesis and it's amazing that it continues to work is to take offline to online transitions and try to monetize them so you know the, the latest one which they own uh, which is angie uh which helps uh, home like home improvement type of things you know connects people it's the former angie list uh is selling it's it's also in the forgotten 40 and selling at you know 0.8 times sales so there's just a lot to like there. Um, uh, Angie has an outsized risk reward at, at these levels, but probably the safer way of playing it is to buy IAC. Interesting story. And I agree, he doesn't get enough credit. So now let's look at Comcast. This is a giant in the world of media, entertainment, tech, and telecom. As we know, media stocks have had a tough time in the past year or two, whether we're talking about Comcast or Disney or Paramount Global or many others. So why Comcast and why now? Um, we like great cap alloc capital allocators and Brian Roberts has done a very good job. You know, since 2021, they've uh, bought back, they've returned about 20% or over 20% to shareholders. 
right now they probably have the best hand financially in in media and there's a lot of distressed slash subscale players out there that they could use that financial heft to take advantage of and we think the fears over fixed wireless are largely overblown and comcast is a very strong broadband business and it's it's evident by you know this weekend and they got a lot of or the nfl got a lot of flack for it that you know peacock uh had the exclusive rights to the the chiefs game on, on saturday night and 30 percent of all internet traffic i believe was due to that game and fixed wireless if you're going to go in a world where streaming is going to take over that much fixed wireless is not going to be able to compete there's a there's a need for it or a reason for it but you know their broadband franchise is extremely strong um in april of this year the two-year anniversary of the at&t warner brothers deal is done and i would not be surprised to see nbcu and um and Warner Brothers Discovery uh, get together. Looks like there could be a lot of deals in the media sector over the next year or so. A absolutely. And, and there needs to be because a lot of these companies are subscale. Peacock is subscale. I don't know what's going to happen to Viacom. That's one we've uh, fortunately, for the most part, stayed away from. Uh, I think Warner Brothers Discovery is extremely interesting, but Comcast, I think, will be able to really take advantage of, of this type of situation. Excellent. All right, now let's move on to sports. And we're not going to talk about the Eagles. There's enough mourning in my house about that. <laughs> so let's talk about baseball and basketball and hockey. And talking here about the Atlanta Braves, which was spun out of John Malone's Liberty Media last year, and Madison Square Garden Sports, which is controlled by James Dolan and owns the Knicks and the Rangers. So two things here. What is the attraction of these stocks? Why are they on your list? And second, what can you tell us about the contrasting approaches of Dolan and Malone? Well, I, I, I think both are attractive in their, in their own rights. They're both, the public markets do not really correctly value um, you know, sports teams. And you can see by these huge premiums to the Forbes value, that many, you know, the, the Suns, the, the Broncos, just to name a few, ha have gone for. And uh, I think Liberty Braves, which is controlled by John Malone, who is one of the best capital allocators out there. And he's certainly not one of the owners who, you know, likes to sit in the front row and watch games and, you know, have, have this as an ego trip. I, I think he's a, a seller at the right price. Uh, the K shares are, are trading at around $38. We think they're worth, you know, roughly $55 a share utilizing, you know, a moda, utilizing a, a premium to the Forbes valuation. And at some point in time, uh, he's going to sell the team. Is it this year? Is it next? Who knows? But some, someone will, will come in. They're an extremely valuable asset. They also own valuable real estate, uh, the battery, which is located outside of the or around the stadium uh, is not properly reflected in the stock price. So that's one that we, we find extremely attractive at current levels. All right. And then moving on to Madison Square Garden Sports. Well, James Dolan, I, I think many investors would view him as the opposite of John Malone, although to give him credit, you know, he did sell Cablevision at a great price and has been 
friendly to shareholders if you take a very long-term view. Uh, a lot can happen to, to make money in Madison Square Garden sports. I think it's interesting to look at the shareholder base of it. Uh, 9% of the company is owned by Silver Lake. Uh, KKR owns 1% or 2%. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation owns about 3%. And it would not surprise us if they sold part or all of the teams. And I would note that, you know, for those saying it, that would be impossible, I don't think anyone ever would have thought Mark Cuban would have uh, given up control of, of the Mavericks. And one thing that's really interesting to note is if you look at the board composition of Madison Square Garden sports, Nelson Peltz is on this board. And if this was one of Tryon's companies that they were invested in, there is no way he would have ever allowed what has happened to that company to, to occur. So it, it, I just think that's kind of an interesting aside. But if you look at it in terms of some of the parts basis, uh, I think the enterprise value of the company is $5 billion. Forbes pegs the Knicks closer, close to seven. The Rangers, I believe, are a two-seven. So you have a lot of downside protection there. And over the next couple of years, as I said, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they sold all or part of the teams and uh, if they bought back a lot of stock or, or gave a large special dividend. Well, people have been saying this for a while, but Jim Dolan has, hold, has held fast to the team so far. So. That's 100% correct. And to his credit, it's been the right thing to do, as while it might not be reflected in the stock price, the value of these teams has significantly appreciated uh, at a faster clip than pretty much any asset class outside of biz Bitcoin, which I don't consider an asset class. <laughs> so you, you've been able to compound tax-free, and as long as value is eventually realized, if you're a long-term patient investor, he's, he's done the right thing by you. Good point. We should do a whole call on sports investing one day, but not today. <laughs> so today I want to move on and talk to Ben about some of the company's reporting earnings. Goldman Sachs reported fourth quarter earnings this morning. The results were good and the stock is up. That makes Goldman a bit of a successful turnaround story after a challenging year. Ben, what do you read into the latest results? Well, I think this is uh, just uh, uh, Goldman getting back to basics kind of story. Um, you know, it made that uh, excursion into uh, um, a kind of retail um, banking that uh, really hasn't uh, pay, didn't pay off for them, and I think distracted the company uh, from the stuff that it actually does well, like investment banking and trading and things like that. And so, what we're seeing now is that uh, um, they're getting some credit for the decisions that they've made. The stock is actually up today; I think a little more than one percent, even though banks are not having a good day. Um, and, and I think it's because of this potential turnaround story. Um, I, I find it interesting that when you look at what has uh, done well so far out of the bank, big bank earnings, um, it's Goldman and the other is Citigroup. On Friday, um, Citigroup, I think, was up while Wells, uh, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America were all down. And I think a lot of that has to do with the self-help opportunities. Uh, there's a lot going on in banking. Um, people are worried about um, you know, the impact of lower rates on uh, on earnings and things like that. So in that kind of environment, you want to own something like Goldman or a city that has ways to drive earnings that have nothing to do with the macro situation. So what is the outlook for banks in general? We had a lot of big banks reporting last week. We're not done yet. Morgan Stanley also reports today. 
or reported today. What were the big themes of the latest earnings season for the leading banks and what's the outlook in general for the group? Well, one was that the charges that the banks had to take. Part of these were out of their control. Um, the FDIC had to replenish its uh, its coffers um, so it could uh, take over uh, failing banks, and uh, that led to some big charges. Uh, there were other charges um, related to factors that were perhaps in their control. Um, so that was a big thing. There was, these were very messy, noisy numbers uh, that came out. Um, the other thing that uh, we heard a lot about is just you know how good would these numbers have to be given the big rally that bank stocks had at the end of the year. And I, and I think the results showed that they had to be better than they were. Um, you know, the, these stocks were amazing performers. Um, all of them had rallied um, after, you know, really terrible starts to the year. And you needed to show more than just uh, the regular kind of earnings beat that most banks can pull off in their sleep. And, and I think that uh, was borne out as well. And so now it's going to be this question of what happens to, uh, to earnings um, as rates drop. You know, we do see that uh, one thing that will help is there's been this cash sorting problem. We're going to hear about that more in a minute where, um, you know, people have uh, wanted to go, they've been taking their money out of low yield accounts and putting it to high yield accounts just to take advantage of these high interest rates. And that ends up uh, squeezing margins um, at banks. And you also had this problem with uh, the held to maturity securities, um, that these are securities that the banks don't need to mark to market. But when you do mark them to market, they look pretty bad. With treasury yields falling during the last quarter of the year, that helped that uh, part of the story. But it's really going to come down to earnings. Can they grow them? What's it going to look like if rates do get cut? So you mentioned the cash sorting problem. You know that I know what to ask you about Charles Schwab, which is also basically a bank. Charles had trouble. Charles Schwab had trouble last year in this area, but things look look up at the moment. They seem to be looking up, especially in cash sorting. So, what do you expect to hear from Schwab? Maybe explain to listeners what cash sorting is first, and then why it's been a problem, and what you expect to have. Well, Schwab is supposed to report a profit of sixty-four cents. That'd be down from a dollar seven. Um, and uh, but but what people have really been worrying about there is, as you said, this cash sorting. What happens is um, most of the time people just leave their money in their sweep account. Uh, this is the account that we sell a stock at Schwab. It just goes right in there, and you can buy another stock or a fund or, or whatever with it. Um, for if those accounts pay almost nothing on um, uh, in terms of interest. And when interest rates were almost nothing, it didn't matter. Uh, what happened is that as rates went up, um, investors started to realize that they're leaving a lot of interest on the table by leaving the money in a sweep account. And so they started taking that money out and they were putting it into um, into money market accounts and, and elsewhere where they could get those high yields. And that really had an impact on Schwab's uh, margins. Um, and it was a big problem for them. The uh, the good news, according to Raymond James, is that uh, the, the data seems to indicate that um, cash sorting is really slowing down. Um, people are less focused on it. And that should help stabilize the balance sheet. Um, and they're going to also be able to um, not have to pay out as much of the uh, the high cost short term funding kind of things to, to keep the cash around. Um, and the other thing that Schwab has going for it is that uh, there were some near term disruptions, Raymond James says, when they uh, bought uh, as they integrated TD Ameritrade. And that also looks to be in the past. And so. If uh, Raymond James is right, we're going to have a eh, kind of quarter uh, for the fourth quarter of 2023, but you're going to see a pretty big rebound in earnings in 2024 and 2025. All right. Interesting. Interesting turnaround potential there. 
So one more stock I want to focus on this week is SLB, formerly known as Schlumberger. It reports on Friday. There was actually a lot of positive talk about energy at the Barron's Roundtable this year. We haven't heard that in quite some time. What is the outlook for SLB? Well, these are interesting stocks. They're, you know, part mm-hmm. of it of their um, performance is going to be tied to oil prices, and oil prices really just haven't been going up all that much. And so, uh, SLB stock, and you know what? I'm I'm actually kind of bummed that they're not Schlumberger anymore because I remember <laughs> the first time I said Schlumberger wrong. I think I said Schlumberger or something like that, and got corrected. And I missed the opportunity to correct others when they said it for the first time incorrectly. No more, my friend. No more. Um, but uh, the, the stock's been an, an, a pretty lousy performer, down uh, 5.91% uh, so far this year, down 18% over the past three months. Um, and that's a lot of that's due to oil prices. But there's another issue that I think is weighing on oil field services stocks generally, and that's this uh, M&A that's going on among the E&P stocks, the exploration and production. Um, when this is coming from James West over at uh, Evercore ISI, but he was pointing out that when um, you have the EMP companies are consolidating, that actually pushes down um, pricing. Um, you lose market share. You have to deal with uh, fewer customers so that they are able to, your customers are starting to push down your prices. They're pushing back on things. And so he thinks that oil field services companies have to start consolidating as well. Um, otherwise, they'll lose too much pricing power. So I think we're going to hear a lot about that, about oil prices, about business, where it's really international over um, U.S. is really where the uh, the benefit seems to be um, right now. Um, but it's going to also be on this consolidation that's happening and what that's going to mean going forward. So, John, I noticed you don't seem to have any energy stocks on the Forgotten 40. Uh, yeah, energy has been, for better or for worse, an area that we have have avoided. And it's it's interesting if you if you look since two thousand and nine, uh, the worst performing asset classes uh, have been cash and commodities. And we don't like energy stocks because they they're large, not fully, but largely dependent on the price of commodities uh, or energy uh, that you you don't have control over. So we. We tend to avoid it, and it also makes us a little bit nervous how bullish everyone is on energy. At the moment, we had a question from Larry, and I'm going to put this to Ben. He wants to know what caused energy stocks to pull back and remain range-bound over the past year or so. Uh, I think it's two things. Um, I think the first is just oil prices. Um, you know, it's uh, oil stocks really rallied when uh, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine and oil oil prices spiked, oil stocks did as well. Um, but since then, they're, despite the best efforts of many of the big oil producers outside the U.S., you know, they haven't been able to really prop up uh, oil prices, even with what's going on in the Middle East right now. I'm going to get a, a fresh price if you give me a second. But oil, it's at $72. It keeps trying to rally. It gets up to 75 and it just falls right back. And I think that is worrying some people. And then the other thing I, I think is a concern is that um, oil companies did a really good job of convincing people that uh, convincing investors that they really are more um, investor friendly, investor focused. They're paying out uh, larger dividends. They're not, you know, not trying to do the things in the past that have just destroyed shareholder value, like uh, buying other companies at the top of the cycle and that kind of thing. Um, and as we see M&A pick up and um, 
whatnot. I think people are just starting to worry that we're going back to the same old oil companies of the past. And that's a bit worrisome. Um, so I think you, you have to see both. Higher oil prices would probably solve a lot of problems. But I think you're going to uh, investors just want to listen to how do companies plan on allocating their capital and are they going to continue to be shareholder friendly? As always, critical issues. So I want to come back to one more of the Forgotten 40. I said we'd talk about the Forgotten 5, and that's Uber, John. That is a non-traditional value stock that made it onto this year's list. Why has the stock been neglected? Certainly the company isn't neglected. Most of us are Ubering every day. And what could provoke a turnaround? Yeah, um, yeah Uber is certainly not a statistically cheap stock, and you know I think Ben Graham would be rolling over in his grave on, on, on this one, but it was the best performer of the 2023 class. It was up 130% and we decided to feature it again. I still think that the wide moat that they have, especially in the US compared to Lyft is underappreciated. Um, we expect Uber's revenue to scale rapidly, uh, even more so than, than the street thinks over a, a, a slowly rising expense base. Um, the, the problem that they had, um, you know, 12, 24 months ago about not having enough drivers has largely been resolved. They have a, a growing subscription business. Their advertising business is starting to do quite well. They're headed towards an investment grade credit rating. They could start returning capital to shareholders. You know, there's, there's a lot to like here. And I think, um, this is one of those stocks that could have a runway to do well over a, a multi-year period. And, and John, can, can you flesh out a little bit that, that concept of the moat you think Uber has? I'm always amazed that, uh, you know, I have both apps on my phone um, and how often I find myself going to Uber and not Lyft and how just how, how much smoother the Uber app seems to be than the Lyft one. Um, would you mind to explain that a little bit more? Yeah, it's 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 a better app, and they just have more drivers, is which what people want. They want to be able to be picked up quickly. Um, they also have the delivery part of the business, um, which is also extreme. You know, with 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 Uber Eats, which is is also something that um, drivers uh, like to be able to have the option of having both as well as as consumers, and. It's yeah, it's just a winner take most type of situation. And I think Lyft is probably <clears throat> it's a it's a cheaper stock, but I think it's cheaper for for a reason. And, and Uber is just going to continue to dominate. And I think there's still a lot of, um, you know, still the street still views this in some ways as Travis's old company that's, you know, free spending type of type of, of enterprise and they've been much more disciplined. Uh, and I, I think this it's going to continue to surprise people and, and one uh, that I think is, is underappreciated. You know, John, my observation is that a lot of drivers drive for both Uber and Lyft, but they drive a lot more for Uber. Exactly. That, that, that's true because they drive more for Uber because there's more people utilize the Uber <laughs> app which gives them more of a chance to make money. So it's this is a, a pure network effect. It's um, they, they've done a, a better job of attracting people or drivers to the platform, which then attracts users to the platform. And 
you know, having this Uber one where I think they, someone pays $10 a month uh, and then they get a discount on their, on, you know, items on, on the Uber app is something that sh should help them greatly. So I, I think it's, um, as I said, it's a, it's a pure network effect. Interesting. So, Lauren, yes. Yes. Lauren, I rarely get to ask you questions, but I want to ask you one. You sit and next to me. You ask me questions every day. On the show, Lauren, on the show. Ah, you know, John mentioned earlier the roundtable. You know, yes. you're the one who puts this together every year. The first installment ran uh, this uh, this this week. Could you summarize uh, your big takeaways from this? Yeah, there were a lot of takeaways. Um, somewhat hard to summarize, but I will try. My feeling was the crowd. We've got 11 money managers and market strategists on the panel this year. And we had a couple of people who were table poundingly bullish on the outlook for American innovation, tech stocks, and the broader stock market. But the majority of the crowd was pretty meh in its market outlook. The theme of the of this crowd was the market could be up 5%, down 5%. They see a lot of um, things standing in the way of further gains, primarily the rich valuations on a lot of the big stocks. We had a a rather feisty debate on the outlook for small caps. John Rogers is a well-known mid and small cap manager, and he thinks that small caps day is about to dawn and others on the panel disagreed with him. It made for a good conversation. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. The panel did not talk a lot about the economy. There wasn't much to talk about. They pretty much expect the U S economy to be okay next year. And most of them think the Fed will cut rates. In fact, all of them think the Fed will cut rates, but there's some debate about when, and our panelists mostly see rate cuts coming later, not sooner. That is closer to May and June and not March. So I would say those were the big takeaways, Ben. And there was a lot more talk about energy, which, um, which was surprising, but good to hear. There was some general talk. This was what's been published so far has been primarily the macroeconomic discussion in the market discussion, not individual stock picks. But there was also talk about mergers and acquisitions heating up this year for a variety of reasons. Big companies have a lot of cash. Small companies are finding it tougher to navigate a large cap market and maybe ripe for takeovers. And in a lot of industries like healthcare, for instance, mergers can make a lot of sense as drug companies try to grow their pipelines. But it's not just in the healthcare industry, as John talked about, we could see a lot of mergers in the entertainment industry as well and in others. So we'll have stock picks rolling out over the next two weeks from our roundtable panelists. And I thought it was a great roundtable, but I sit in the room and listen, and I am glad you enjoyed being here. That's a great issue. Or so, great three issues. <laughs> it's three issues, and then I look up and it's summer already. Right. But it's, um, I, th I thought it was very interesting this year because there was some debate about the market and about different sectors of the market. So thanks for asking. I have a few more questions for the two of you. John, I wanted to ask you, we have a question from Christopher. What are your assumptions for interest rates in 2024? That, that's a great question. And trying to predict the, the level of interest rates is is impossible. Uh, I think one of the things that's really interesting, and JP Morgan 
puts out this guide to the market that I think is pretty much available to anyone. You can just Google it um, and how value versus growth does in different interest rate environments. And um, it, the data goes back to, I think, 1979 and in a and in utilizing the three, the 10 year treasury, the four to five percent range value significantly outperforms up about 10% growth up about 8%, uh, three to 4%. Uh, it's, it's, it's virtually a dead heat and anything above 5% uh, value, uh, outperforms. So I, I would imagine that we're going to stay in the th three to 5% range, but trying to predict what the fed is going to do and when is, is, is impossible. And, you know, I think individuals would be better off trying to figure out you know, what they own and should they be owning it. That's well said. So Herb has a question for you. What does a value investor do in this market? I think a lot of value investors have wondered that. I, I you know, it's, we are value investors and I, and I, I somewhat, I know you have to put the world in value and growth. I, I, I kind of dislike the, the term. I, I think people should just be opportunists. And I think there's a lot of opportunity out there, as we, as we discussed, especially in small cap land. I think people just need to be patient. I, I think trying to figure out, you know, what's going to do well over the next three or six months is that's a really, really hard game to play. If you're looking, though, what's going to do well over the next two, three, four years, a lot of people aren't doing that. And it's a lot easier to do. So if you're a value investor and you, you can spend time looking at these smaller companies that you know, are not well followed on Wall Street, I think there's a lot of opportunities to make money. All right. Makes sense. Well, a question for Ben. George wants to know about key players and coming stars in the AI market. That's artificial intelligence, which, by the way, was a huge topic of conversation at the roundtable in a very positive way. Yeah, I, I, you know, that, that's a, it's a good one because we know that there are really two players right now. It's uh, NVIDIA and Microsoft are, are the mm -hmm. big ones. And so everyone's trying to figure out that question, like who the key players are going to be. I do think that uh, you will see uh, some diversification among the uh, chip players. Everybody can't uh, use NVIDIA uh, chips. So there's going to have to be chips coming from elsewhere. Um, you know, so companies like Intel and AMD are going to be working to get into this market as well. So I think you have to watch the chip players. Um, I, I think you have to look at the data center stocks because this is going to take a lot of data to, to manage to do AI well. Um, but, I, but I think that the, more than anything, it's going to be who's trying to convince you that uh, they are an AI stock when maybe they're not so much. And we've already seen some of that happening on Wall Street where uh, you're, you're seeing downgrades for stocks that have been uh, bid up on the thought that maybe they are, um, are that they're AI stocks and um, and, and then uh, but uh, may not be. And so you're seeing some downgrades off of those kind of things. Uh, I think Palantir was one that happened earlier this year. Um, but it's it's a tough one. Um, and, uh, you know, it's there, there's so much hype that I think that is the important thing is like who's who has too much hype behind them right now. Right. That's a, that's a good point. Also discussed at the round table. So uh, very easy to attach yourself to AI verbally, but not actually. And, yeah. and not in, in, in a revenue way. I mean, that's what's so amazing about NVIDIA is just the way that it has translated into a massive boost in revenue. Right. NVIDIA and Microsoft are clearly in the lead. So 
we had a question from George. I'm going to put this to you, John. It's about Disney. And uh, I don't know to what extent you cover Disney, but since we talked about Comcast, which has some similar businesses like theme parks, do you have any thoughts about Disney? I mean, Disney has some of the greatest IP out there. Uh, there's an activist investor uh, in Pelts and, 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 and others there. I think they're eventually going to write the ship. It's, it's interesting to see what they'll do with, with ESPN. I think it's a... It's a it's a company we've followed for you know you know since Cap City days. So I, I think it's a an interesting uh, name here. It certainly can't find a friend on Wall Street, um, but investors are going to have to be patient and hopefully uh, Bob Iger can bring the magic back. That's what he helps too. All right, we're going to close today with that. I do want to mention one thing. Stephen notes in the comments that Uber offers wheelchair accessible travel and that American Express offers Uber credits for use. So thank you for those public service announcements, Stephen. We appreciate it. That is it for today. Thank you for joining me on Barron's Live, Ben and John, and thank you to our listeners. We will be back next Monday. We'll have a lot more market commentary and we'll have a closer look at fourth quarter earnings and the energy market. Stay tuned for that call. In the meantime, everyone, stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.